The seventh chapter of Romans, beginning in verse number one. The Apostle Paul, of course, continuing these thoughts that we've been looking at in the book of Romans, writes these words, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth, but if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let me draw your attention back to verse number four. And if you mark in your Bible or you make notes or highlight you might mark the phrase, dead to the law by the body of Christ. Dead to the law by the body of Christ. In the preceding chapter, especially in chapter number 6, Paul said believers are no longer under the law, but under grace. And we've dealt with that topic and dealt with that thought that no longer being under the law and being under grace does not equate to a license to sin. It does not equate to the ability to do what we want. In other words, it does not completely do away with the law. But what we're looking at is the reality that being under the law with regard to justification is what Paul had in mind here. In other words, the law does not justify us. The law does not uh, convert us or save us. But what Paul is saying here, being dead to the law by the body of Christ, Paul knows that there's something going to be very offensive in that to the believing Jew. Now, I realize today that for many of us, that's not going to have much relevance. We're not going to consider that and think, am I a believing Jew? Uh, but it does have relevance to us because of the lesson that is being taught uh, to them. Uh, the Jews, even after their conversion, they retained a very high opinion of the law. In other words, they still struggled with the reality of the law must still be a part of my justification. Now, the reason I say that that's uh, not necessarily irrelevant to us is because there are people today who still have the idea that somehow obedience to the law is going to equate to my justification, and that is not the case at all. However, there is in this text... There is really two things that are given to help us uh, kind of remember how the law is to be viewed. Uh, in a very simplistic way, we have before us a funeral and a marriage. You have a funeral and a marriage. Uh, two different sides of a spectrum of life, right? You have the joyous occasion of marriage, and then you have uh, one of the most difficult times in life, and that's a death, that's a funeral. That, that is the extreme that Paul is going here. But you'll notice that he says that the death is dead to the law by the body of Christ. That little word by there tells us that this is the, that is the passageway to it. 
In other words, to be dead to the law is to be in the body of Christ. There is a death and then there is a marriage. However, beginning here in chapter, in chapter number 7, Paul is now explaining the meaning of those Jews who had a high opinion of the law. Those who still said, hey, this has got to be a part of it. In other words, they wanted to be dead to the law, or alive to the law still, and married to Christ. In other words, they wanted Christ, but they also still wanted the law. Paul now uses chapter number 7 to begin a discussion on this is what this means. And he's going to use two common things all of us can understand today. Most all of us understand the purpose of a funeral, and most all of us understand the purpose of a marriage. He's going to use the bonds of matrimony to describe what this is. He gives an illustration of a marriage of a husband and a wife, and he gives the rules and the laws for how that marriage is to be. And then he gives an illustration that if there's a death in that marriage, that there is freedom for that other one who is left there. It's a very direct and a very common, understandable uh, illustration that he gives this morning. But Paul refers to the law again. Now, what is the law he is referring to? Uh, remember, he's not referring to the ceremonial law. He's primarily re referring to the moral law of God, which is it is the, the whole will of God that's been manifested, God's laws. But you'll notice that in verse 4, again, he puts a great emphasis on the subject here of the believer in Christ. For every believer in Christ, there is a death and there is a marriage. There is a freedom from something and an entrance into another. Free from this into this. The gospel and the law. That's what we're dealing with here. What does, how does the law apply to the gospel? How does the gospel apply to the law? But the reality is, is those that are in Christ today, if you're in Christ today, your relationship to the law has changed. It doesn't mean the law is non-important, but your relationship to it is. In other words, before Christ, before you were married to Christ, and we'll talk about that, you had a different relationship to the law. After your marriage in Christ, your relationship to the law has now changed. What once was is no longer. You have now been free to move from here to there. That's the example he's going to give in this marriage. So I like how Paul uses, and even as we looked at this morning, Christ giving the example of the bread of life, how he uses very common, understandable things to clearly put before us what he intended, intends for us to get. So Paul, throughout chapter number 7, is going to speak to the believer's relationship to the law of God, and then he's going to get into the question later on in the next couple of weeks of whether or not a believer will ever be totally free from the corruption and practice of sin. In other words, will there ever come a day when we are free from sin and its corrupting influences? But this morning as we deal with this, First of all, let's look at these verse by verse. And Paul says, know ye not, brethren. He speaks as people who have an understanding. He's not speaking to an ignorant crowd. He's speaking to people who would have some comprehension of what he's talking about. They would know uh, this is not something new. But he says, for I speak to them that know the law. It would be like me looking out upon you and saying, brethren, you know what I'm getting ready to tell you because you are aware of it. You've been instructed in it. You have an idea of what this means. And it, he says, you, I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. 
He asks in a form of a question, which could simply mean that there are, maybe he addresses that in a way that maybe some are not as aware as they should be, but yet that's what he's, he's telling them. The law here. Uh, we often refer to the law and we immediately we think of Moses, we think of the tablets. Uh, but remember that the law is much more than just those Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, uh, those are the summary, all right? That's the summary of the law. If you were to say, what is the law of God? You could summarize them in those Ten Commandments. But notice what he says about that. He said, how that the law hath dominion over a man. Dominion means to have the authority over. So in other words, you have here that the law rules people by its demands. The law says obey or suffer the, sac- or suffer the consequences. The law always has a demand. What does the law require? The law requires perfect obedience. And there is a threat of punishment if complete obedience is not reached. Okay? Now we've told you that there are really two covenants that God has made with man. There was the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is the, the covenant that man in his own abilities found himself at a place where he could not keep the law. In the covenant of grace realizes that there is no longer the keeping of the law, but we are now not under the law, but we're under grace. Paul wants them to understand that there's a difference between the law and being in Christ. That's why he uses the example of the marriage. He uses the example to explain to us that it's kind of like a marriage. Now, a lot of people have used this to, to, to kind of use as their uh, means of describing marriage and what woman's supposed to do and what the man's supposed to do. That's not really the intent of Paul here. He's, he, marriage is a covenant, all right? Marriage, that's, that's what marriage is. It is a covenant between people. But you also know that Christ uses the illustration of him being the husband and we are the bride as the church. The theme of marriage runs all through the Bible and it goes, more, it goes beyond just the, the, human, uh, the human marriage ceremony. But he uses common terms. He uses husband, he uses wives, he uses things that they're going to be able to clearly understand. Now, what Paul had said in the previous chapter in Romans 6.14, he said about dominion of sin. He said, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. To be under the law means to be ruled by the strict demands of the law. The only way the law can be perfectly fulfilled is perfect obedience. If your standing before God is based upon perfect obedience, then we are all condemned. Because we cannot keep the law perfectly. That's what he's been trying to teach us here. To be under grace, to be under grace is to, to not be held responsible for the breaking of the law, to not be to keep the perfection of the law, but yet we have no way to atone for that. We have no way to, to, to remedy that. So to be under grace is to now have that dominion or that the wages of that breaking of the law, to have those removed. To be under grace means that we are now ruled by God's love in Christ. A lot of people often say grace is about what God gives me or all the good things God gives me. No, to be under grace means that now you are ruled by God's love in Christ. In other words, what used to once rule you was the law. Now in Christ, I'm ruled by the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that draws man unto himself. 
Okay, love when it's used in the terms of Christ's love, we're talking about a love that we as humans could only hope to attain. Christ's love is what drew us. If you're in Christ today, you were drawn by His love. It was not your love for Christ, it was Christ's love for you. That drew you unto Himself. To be under grace is now, instead of being held liable to the law, now our love is in Christ. Why? Because Christ perfectly atoned for sin by fulfilling the law perfectly. Christ did fulfill the law. Death frees a person from the obligation of the law. It's a silly illustration, but if a person physically dies, the human laws of this earth really no longer matter, do they? A dead person's not going to be held responsible for breaking the speed limit. They're not going to be held responsible because they've, they've died. There is no more subjection to a law. Death severed the bond. Got it? Death severs it. So there's a death to the law. That means there's a severing of. So you cannot be held liable to the law if you're dead to it. Now again, many people have misunderstood and said that means I have a license to sin. Praise God, I can do whatever I want. That's a clear evidence you are not under grace. Under grace would not lead you to say, I'm free to do whatever I want. It would humble you. That's the only result of Christ's love. Christ's love humbles us. It doesn't make us arrogant. It doesn't make us pride-filled. It literally humbles us. But death frees a person from the obligation of the law. As we're alive, we're subject to the law. You can wake up tomorrow and say, I'm not going to obey the laws of the land. You have the freedom to do that. But there'll be consequences for it. Eventually, you'll get caught. Eventually, you'll pay whatever for the whatever law you broke. But the law here, Paul is talking about, that the law should never be used as a principle of justification or even our sanctification. In other words, by keeping the law does not justify us. It's not adding to us. It's not making us better. The law no longer has dominion over a man. What changes? When does death to the law take place? Death to the law takes place when there's a union with Christ. To be united with Christ is to be dead to the law. So in other words, today, if I am in Christ, I am now dead to the law. How did that take place? By the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ referred to? We'll talk about this in a moment. What Jesus did on the cross. All four of the hymns this morning were singing about Jesus on the cross and the crucifixion and his ransom and what he has done for us. So when we stop here, we think about this this morning. We're thinking about it is through the body of Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We now become dead to the law once we're in Christ. Paul had said back in Romans 6 verse 7, he said, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now we remember that was not free from sin or sin nature, but it means it's a judicial term. We're released from the service or the bond of sin. In other words, what used to lead us, what used to guide us, which was sin, now no longer leads us. So he, Christ, has made us free from the guilt, from the curse, and from the dominion of sin. I'm no longer led by sin, but I'm also no longer under the guilt or the curse of the law. Why? Because I'm married to Christ. I'm now in Christ. Paul says, 
For the woman, verse 2, which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Now again, let's not make this more than it is. This is, a, this is an illustration. He is stating this as an illustration. Men should not go off on a line and say, see, this is where I'm the boss and I'm in charge. You, you don't understand. This is not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the bound of the covenant of marriage, not what you're going to do. You're going to serve me. You're going to do this. That's not what he's, This is merely an illustration of the covenant of marriage. So here you have, he states this, and Paul gives this illustration in what dissolves the legal obligation, what breaks the covenant of that marriage is death. It used to be every, every wedding vow that was taken that was phrased, till death do us part. Still mostly is. For the most part, you still hear that. That's the idea, that those vows actually are supposed to have a real meaning to them. That, that's supposed to be what severs this. And I've told you many times, most young couples get there so fast, they have no idea what they're even saying. Do you realize what you said? Till death do us part? That you're, you're, you're taking, this is a covenant here. And he's saying that that covenant, much like the covenant between a husband and wife, it is severed by death. Remember, there has to be a death to, for there to be freedom. In other words, as long as the husband lives, and again, people have said, well, what if the woman dies for it? It's the same concept, okay? You'd be surprised how many people try to turn these things and they say, okay, well, I guess it's, it's different if it's their way around. It's, it's almost like God knew what he was doing, okay? He's, it, it's, the same, it's the same conversation. But it's this obligation, Remember, think about legality. Think about the difference between being held to the law and freedom. That's the idea, held to the law and freedom. The woman that's referred to here becomes dead in the sense of being legally bound to her husband, not by her own death, but by his death. In this illustration, his death frees her from the binding obligation that she had. She's, she's no longer bound to him. And my grandmother once said, and my grandmother's been gone a long time, my grandfather had been gone even longer. She actually said that once. She said that I am, she said, I'm never getting married again. Her decision was, he was, she was, the, one, he was the one I was bound to, and that's the only man I'm ever going to be bound to. She took that, she took that stand. But in the means of the law, and even in the sense of a real marriage, in real life, that is what severs that obligation. She is no longer held liable to be married to the man who is now dead. Okay, that's about as simple as you can put it. Now, you may make a decision in, in married life, and you may say, I'm never going to marry again, but it doesn't mean that you're not free to. But again, remember, he's using this as an illustration of the law and being in the body of Christ. The husband dies or the wife dies, however you want to do this, they are no longer bound in any sense. That woman, that man, she is free to marry again. Okay, that's, that's the idea here. So what is he saying with regard to the law? If there's been a death to the law, there's freedom in another. So the marriage illustration is used to show that only 
death can sever the bond of the law and allow remarriage. So in other words, to be in Christ, there has to be a severing of the old bond. That old bond was the law. The law has now been severed. So look at verse number, look at verse number, uh, the end of verse 2. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Now, in the, the human realm, that is 100% true. If she's married to another man and, and is with a, if she's married to another man, she'll be called uh, an adulteress. It's the same concept. What Paul is trying to explain here is that if you are still alive under the law and trying to be in Christ, you would be referred to as an adulteress because you are in two covenants. Okay? You're in both of them. You can't be in both of them. But if her husband be dead, he says it twice, she is free from that law. The law that bound them together. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. You know, that, that marriage, humanly speaking, death separates them humanly, but there's still, there's still always the idea that I was married to that man. But that woman, in that case, she's free to marry again, and there is absolutely no consideration that she would be referred to as an adulteress. Again, that's what's happening here. This law that now you are dead to, you are now have freedom to move into this being married to Christ. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Notice he says that you should be married to another, even to him. I've got those phrase, that word, those phrase circled. Even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. He says to be dead to the law is to be married to Christ. Now again, there's been so many silly things that have taken place in our world. I'm not even sure I want to tread here. But there's, there's, this, there's this crazy movement that, especially young ladies have gotten themselves wrapped up in that taking this married to Christ thing and turning it into something that was never intended. Almost like there's some kind of a dating relationship with Christ. I mean, it's sick and it's out there and it, their church is promoting this. He's not talking about this in, a, in the, the human realm, the physical sense we think about, being married to Christ or that I'm dating Jesus. I heard a, I heard a girl say that in a public square one time. You're dating Jesus. I don't think so. This is not what he's talking about here. You got, you've got to get the, you, you know, you've got to understand the difference between a human illustration that he's trying to use to illustrate a, an eternal truth. That's what this is. People, people so approach these scriptures and they just say, I just want to see the human aspect of this instead of actually seeing the spiritual. And Paul was much more concerned about the spiritual than he was the earthly realm of this. Remember, we're not talking about something that's temporary. We're talking about eternity here. We're talking about the, the difference between life and death. Because today, if you're trusting in the law as your means of eternal life, you're in, big, you're in trouble today. You're, you're, you are on your way to hell because the law cannot save you. 
But if you are in Christ, then being in Christ is the means of eternal life. But while we were under the law, we could not come into the bonds of the new covenant. The new covenant is in Christ. That's the covenant of grace. Outside of Christ, you're in the covenant of works. Inside of Christ, you're in the covenant of grace. But through the death of Christ, we now become dead to the law, and therefore we are free from the covenant and the principle of the law because of what has now come, the covenant of grace. The believer's freedom from this law as a covenant of life and death, that's the, co- that's the principle of justification, and now no longer condemned. If you are living under the law, condemnation. If you're married to Christ, justification. In Christ, justification. In the law, condemnation. You cannot be condemned if you're in Christ. There is therefore no more condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, to them which are in Christ Jesus or married to Christ. They are now no longer, they're dead to the law by the body of Christ. Just as this woman is free from the laws of the husband, she is now no longer legally bound to a dead husband. The dead husband cannot speak beyond the grave. Okay? In the, in the human terms, she's free from that. However, this really Paul gets to the gist of the matter where this is going to put to rest the idea of a license to sin because now I'm married to Christ. There's still a covenant. There's still now a legally binding agreement there. The covenants that God makes are the covenants that are secure. They are sure covenants. There's a lot we could say about the human aspect of this. But remember, when God makes the covenant, those covenants are forever. Those those covenants are eternal. Those covenants are not going to be there one day and gone the next. But you'll notice here, Paul goes on one step further. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law by the body of Christ. We talked about that, the death, the burial, the resurrection, that ye should be married to another, even to him. That's Christ, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. The only way we can bring anything forth for God is being in Christ. Christ's suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection as the atonement to sin now makes us dead to the law. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the law is dead. The law still has a purpose. What does the law do? The law defines what sin is, and it defines the righteousness required. So when a person tells you, I'm in, I'm in Christ under grace, the law means nothing to me, you're in a dangerous, dangerous church situation. And there are churches all over this country that believe what I just said. If I'm in Christ, I'm under grace, the, I am, the law means nothing to me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because in that law, that's where we get the definition of sin. How do I know I'm a sinner if I don't have the law? I won't. How do I know I'm breaking the law unless the law is posted? How do I know that the sin, the law determines what sin is? 
Someone says, well, what is sin? What's the simplest form of sin? It's missing the mark of God. It's, it's, it's going against His revealed will. The simplest form is to say, read the Ten Commandments. And then you can tell somebody, here's the definition of sin, those Ten Commandments, and you broke them all. Every one of them you've broken. You say, no, I have only broke one out of ten. Well, the Bible says you're guilty. If you break one, you're guilty of them all. But you've broken them all. Every one of us have broken all ten of them repeatedly. Now, if I say I'm dead to the law, the law doesn't mean anything, then I can simply look at the Ten Commandments and say, I don't need any, that doesn't mean anything. I'm under grace. Grace is not about doing whatever you want to do. The law is still always a reminder of what you've been saved from. It's always there. But I'm not trusting in that law as the means of my justification, and I'm not going to obey that which I'm now dead to or a means of saving myself. So, you see that verse 5, he says, for when we were in the flesh, he's talking in past tense here. As a result of sin, by the way, death removes that former relationship. Sin is no longer to have dominion over us. We're now married to Christ. Only now, when you're in Christ, do you bring forth fruit unto God. That's what he's saying there at the end of that verse. Only once we're married to Christ do you bring forth fruit unto God. If you could obey the law 99% of the time, you would still bring forth no fruit unto God. It is only until you're in Christ that then you begin bringing fruit unto God. Again, it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has already done. Christ has fulfilled it. It is because my relationship with Christ is why I'm not held to the consequences of the law. So the law tells us what's sinful. But here's one thing the law can never do. The law can never sever. This is going to offend us. Are you ready? The law can never sever our love for sin. In other words, you can know the law, but guess what you're still going to love? You're still going to love some sin. And you say, that's, preacher, that's not nice. <laughs> I'm just telling you where I am. There's still sin in our life that we love. How do we know we love it? Because we foster it, we feed it, we do things that help it along. You nurture that which you love. Sometimes we make provision for the flesh every single day. We give, we give way to the temptation. Because what, guess what the law will never do? The law will never sever my love for what the law tells me I am a sinner. It's still there. That's why Paul's going to talk about the two natures. He's going to say, I know the law, and guess what? I still can't get beyond the fact that I still sin. I still can't get beyond the fact that I know what I want to do, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And the things I don't want to do, I do them. The law doesn't eradicate the love of sin. Now, Paul does say, though, while we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, this is an interesting phrase, in the flesh means to be in a state of nature without saving grace. Okay, I know there's always been a movement about the carnal Christian. When Paul mentions being in the flesh, he's not talking about a person who's one time living for God and then they're living in carnality. Then they're living for God, they're living for carnality. When Paul refers to being in the flesh, he's talking about when you were still in the state of un, without saving grace on you. This is what your life was. The motions of sins. 
Motion is not like motion like a car moving or an airplane moving. Motions are the impulses. In other words, it's what drives us. It's what moves us. When you were in the flesh, you were moved by sin. The impulses. But notice this. Here's where it really gets interesting. When we were in the flesh, the motion of sins which were by the law... What was by the law? The motions of sin. The impulses of sin came by the law. Folks, here's what we don't get about sin. Sin is so strong and so relentless that the law doesn't even curtail it. It doesn't even keep it from doing it. That's why we talk about taking sin lightly. We think if you just give someone the law, sin will stop. That's not true. The law actually tells us what it is, and in many ways, the law feeds people. You realize there are times when something says do not. What's the, any of the impact, the, the impulse of people when it says do not, they do it. Don't touch, they touch. Don't go beyond this sign, they go beyond the sign. No admittance, employees only. Well, I, I can do that. You said, that's silly. That's what the law does. It doesn't curtail it. It actually makes you want to sin more. You say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's trying to get to the point. If you just give people the law and you rely on the law as the means of justification, the law's not going to keep you from sin. The law's going to tell you that you are a sinner and it's going to be the schoolmaster that tells you that Christ is the only way because I'm not going to be able to live up to this. We break God's law more often than we're willing to even admit. We're talking about sin here. We're talking about something that the law, sir, it stirs sin up in us. That's why Paul is going to mention this next week. We'll look at this. He said, but sin, verse 8 of, of Romans 7, but sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. He says the commandment, wrought or birthed in me all manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence is the same word that means covetous. The law birthed covetousness. Wow. So instead of preventing it, it actually fed it. Again, these are why the people that step out on a limb and say the, the law means nothing, no, they're fully misunderstanding this. You go later in, seven, in verse 11, in Romans 7, he says, For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. I mean, look at the wording Paul's using here. Verse 13 of Romans 7, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. If we're not careful here, we're going to accuse God of giving a defective law, are we not? God didn't give a defective law. He's basically saying the law makes me do more. That doesn't mean that the law is defective. It's man that's defective. That's the difference. See what he's doing here. Trying to put this in an in a easy box for us to understand 
trying to maintain your justification by the law, the law is going to do the exact opposite in you. Without saving grace, the law is going to have the opposite effect. It's not going to curtail you. It's going to feed you. That's just how depraved we are. Man doesn't want to hear that. You don't build churches with that kind of stuff. You just don't. Because we all want to be told we're good. We all want to be told, look, there's something dwelling in you. Apart from God's saving grace, there is nothing good. And by the way, be okay with that. You say, preaching's always so negative. That's not negative. The greatest truth I can tell you this morning is, yeah, you're this and you're depraved, but there is a redeemer. There is a, there is a savior. You can repent and believe the gospel. You can call on him today. Ask him to save you, forgive you of your sins. Or I can give you the hope of some false gospel and false God out there who can offer you nothing but what you can give to that dead God. This is a wonderful thing that Paul is telling us here. He says, verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, to be held means we were once bound to it, just like that illustration of the, the husband who died and the wife was bound to it, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Here's where the difference is. In the law, we served in the oldness of the letter. Married to Christ, we serve in the newness of the spirit. So what do we see here? What does it mean to deliver from the law? Christ has saved us by his grace from the condemnation that the law requires. What does the law require? It requires a death. That being dead wherein we were held. In other words, we are now dead to something that once held us and we're in a better position than we were. Because now we're being held not by the oldness of the letter, but now we're being held in the newness of spirit, which is our marriage in Christ. The newness of the spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's in direct contrast to the written law. We live in the spirit, not by the law. Again, does that mean the law is of no value? Absolutely not. It defines what sin is. It tells us exactly what it is. Paul said all the way back in Romans 2.29, he says, but he, he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. The Jews had all these things. They had the sign of the circumcision. They had the scriptures. They knew it from the youth. But Paul was saying all the way back in Romans 2 that even the Gentile who hears and believes the gospel will begin to serve the Lord from the heart. Guess what the law teaches? The law teaches to serve the Lord. It teaches to love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we serve out of the newness of the Spirit, not out of obedience to the law. That's the difference between a Pharisee and one that has been now saved. They're not serving as obedience to the law as a means of gaining. They're serving in the newness of the Spirit because they are now different. We're now married to Christ. We're not now holding the law. The contrast between man and outward forms of religion and the written law. Truly a born-again believer has life-giving spirit and the law is now written not on tablets. Now the law is written on the heart of man. Now I know these things because the Holy Spirit of God has written that law on my heart. 
That's why I'll tell you, every, every believer here knows when they're getting ready to enter into sin, you don't stumble in it. The temptation arises and you make a decision as to why you're going to go down there or you're not. But you don't sin ignorantly. So I didn't know that. The Holy Spirit's convincing you this is the truth. Now you may find yourself in the middle of sin that you got there a lot quicker than you thought. But you know that Holy Spirit is there not telling you, say, hey, keep the law so you can stay saved. It's revealing to you just the wonders of what it is to actually be in Christ. We have now been discharged from this law as a means of justification. We've been delivered having died to what once restrained us and held us captive. Now we serve Christ not under obedience to written rules and regulations, but in the newness of life and love by the Holy Spirit. That's why we do what we do. Forced obedience of a man under the law is the obedience of a slave. In other words, if I stand up here and, and we say, you must do this, you must, you must, you must, you're nothing more than a slave that obeys. And even a slave can be made to obey. Put enough punishment on them, a slave will obey. That's not the relationship of being married to Christ. Just like I told you in the 10 o'clock, no man or woman ever came to Christ kicking and screaming. Nobody's ever been saved against their will. No one's ever been said, God said, you will be saved whether you like it or not. It's never happened nor ever will happen. Because when Christ opened their eyes and he drew them unto himself, that person came willingly and said, I want to be in Christ. They didn't get drugged there. It's not forced obedience. Folks, I'm telling you today, God is not going to force you to obey him in anything. You're going to want to serve out of the love of Christ just as a bride loves her husband and as that husband loves the bride, they serve out of that, not out of forced obedience. And I'm going to tell you, this is, a, this is for another day. There's, there's marriages out there, literal marriages. That's the way it is. The husband says, I'm going to force you to love me. What a horrible, horrible relationship. It's not going to be forced. And in Christ, we're not forced to serve. The forced obedience of a man is the obedience of a slave. The obedience of a man who's been set free and adopted is the obedience of a son or a daughter. The obedience of a wife is the obedience of love, not law. The message is no longer, this do and you'll live. No more are we slaves under bondage, but we have come into a new relationship. We are now in Christ. We are free. We are rejoicing in the liberty as children of God. What we do now is not out of a spirit of forced obedience. It is out of a spirit of love. Should we love Christ now because he first loved us? Absolutely. Did we love him first? No. Do we love him perfectly? Not even close. Does he love us perfectly? Absolutely. The love of Christ is what's drew us. We would not be in Christ today had it not been for his love. We're not seeking after godly living or holiness in order to be saved by it. If today your desire is the more holy I lived, the more I'll be saved or the closer to God I am, you've missed it. You've missed it. Neither are we seeking to escape from sin 
Listen, we are, we are under no fear of hell today if we are married to Christ. If we're in Christ today, hell is no longer a concern. But the problem comes in is what do we believe is keeping us out of hell? Do we think we're not being condemned because of what we do? Or are we being kept out of condemnation because of what Christ has done? That's the difference. Christ didn't make salvation possible. Christ is salvation. And in those words is a completely different mindset. If we treat Christ as just something that's possible instead of Christ is my salvation, today, if, I'm, if I claim salvation in Christ, Christ did it all. He paid it all. There's not a thing I can do. There's nothing I can add. There's nothing I can take away. He has done it all. When Jesus Christ went upon that cross and he bled and he died and they put him in that grave and three days later he rose from the grave victorious, my salvation was secured. Anything I think is going to get me closer to that or any obedience that's forced by my hand, whether it's by guilt or whatever it is, if I think that that is somehow getting me to God, I've missed it. We have another spirit. We have another covenant. We have a difference. We're dead to the law. But notice again, dead to the law by the body of Christ. Not by me, not by my works, not by what I do, not by how good I am, but by Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 2, and 3, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Here's the, this is the popular carnal Christian. To be carnally minded is death. The only thing that death results in is the person who's still dead in their sins. I'm afraid a lot of people have been led astray by Romans 8. This is about a man to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Didn't we just read that you can't bring fruit unto God unless you are in Christ? The Bible is not confusing. If you get in it and you read it and you study it, you find out, you know what, this... This actually begins to make sense because the Holy Spirit gives you some discernment. It's not contradictory to be dead to the law by the body of Christ. It's really a remarkable thought. Next week, we're going to pick up in verse number 7. And we're going to deal in a loose manner. I'm not going to say that this will be topical in this way, but we're going to deal in the, the, the matter of conviction. What is it to be convicted? Uh, you might ask yourself the question, question, is conviction salvation? If I'm convicted of sin, am I saved? Paul's got an answer for that. Paul's got an answer of even conviction, what it means, and uh, what the law actually exposes, and whether or not conviction is enough for me to say I'm in Christ.
Let's stand together if you would.